So this is the time for a Dhamma discussion, so anything that I've uh, uh, talked about, uh, different points I've raised during this um, uh, set of reflections, then you know, feel free to, to ask your questions. We have a, a wandering mic, uh, we would request that people wait till the microphone arrives before asking a question, then uh, not only can everyone hear uh, the question, but also it'll be recorded so that uh, we'll be able to have reference to that in the future. So. Please, so uh, whatever you would like to ask, this is the time for that. Don't be shy. Uh, Bonte, if the inquiry is successful, it can be emotionally a very frightening experience because I am rather used to having this reality and uh, the body and uh, having some ground under under the feet. So if there is suddenly a, a success in this inquiry uh, and there is actually a panic or emotionally very uh, disturbing reaction to the experience, what would be the advice for dealing with it? Well, it's a good question. Uh, it's uh, this kind of experience, say, as you say, if the inquiry is successful. Um, it's terrifying to the ego, because rather like a, a president that doesn't want to lose power. <laughs> or a prime minister. They feel threatened, and they try to protect themselves. And they, they gather their forces of, uh, of, um, of uh, resistance around them. Uh, so the ego is very like a tyrant or a, 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 um, a political leader. So it's, uh, that uh, threat of being deposed is um, really pain, psychologically painful. But to the heart, it's, very, it's liberating. So it's only the ego that's frightened, I would say. That's where the, the fear is coming from. And so in a sense, that fear is a good sign. It means that the ego knows it's in trouble. And uh, it's not to, to not to demonize the ego. It has the egos have a very useful place. We wouldn't have developed them as a living being that, uh, if they didn't have their place in nature. Our, our ego serves a very useful social function. So I can look at you, can I can say Edmunds, I can look at him and say uh, uh, Venerable Gosito, and you know I'm talking to you and I'm talking to you. So we can distinguish each other. You know, the ego helps us to. Um, they uh, function in society. Like Ajahn Chah would say, if we were all just called person, it would be really difficult. You know, person, person, come over here. Who's, who's he talking to? You know. So the ego has its place, but it becomes problematic when it claims to be an absolute reality. So that kind of feeling of threat is, a, in a way, it's a, uh, it's a healthy symptom. You know, in a way, it, it, the, it's the ego knowing that it's no, no longer in charge of anything, or it never really was in charge of anything. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, in, in also in, in Buddhist practice, the, the quality of the refuges, is, uh, is that's, the, that's the counterpoint to the insight into not-self or into liberation. The, the refuge is a, means it's a, uh, it's a safe place. A refuge means it's something that's secure, it's reliable, it's safe, it's shelter from the storm. That's what a refuge is, like refugees. They're coming from a dangerous place to a safe place. You're seeking refuge. So that uh, the, the, uh, as um, I think Robert Thurman, the, the uh, 
famous uh, Buddhist professor and teacher said the, the Buddha just doesn't you know take away ourselves and lead, leave us out in the middle of the traffic yeah but uh, I think it's a really good expression but rather the that familiar set of identities you know I am a monk or I'm a teacher or I'm a doctor or I'm a I'm a a, um, a spiritual seeker you know that, that's what I am uh, the the familiar I am's are taken away but in the same gesture the refuges are provided so that's and the the refuge in, in Buddha Dhamma and Sangha, yeah, it's not just again it's not what makes it a refuge. It's not just a nice idea, it's not just an ideal. But uh, Lumpur Cha would frequently make the point that that the Buddha that is a refuge is not the Buddha who uh, was born two and a half thousand years ago. The Buddha that's the real refuge, the safe place, is that quality of awareness of your own heart, that which knows. Gee, this is frightening. That which knows fear is not afraid. So taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in that which knows fear rather than the fear itself. It knows that sense of, of uh, agitation or the rewriting of your script. That which knows that, um, that agitation or that transformation is not agitated. It's free from that. So when we talk about taking refuge in Buddha, in Dhamma, which means not just the Buddha's teaching, but it means the, the reality of, of the way things are. It's a fundamental realism. Uh, attuning your, your life, your attitudes with how things actually are rather than how you think they should be or how you thought they were. <coughs> so that um, that, uh, that process of... of um, Fear, in a way, it's it's rather like going to the doctor and finding out there is something seriously wrong with you. In a way, it's like you don't want to hear it, but in another way, it's good that you heard it, and you can do something about it. Does that make sense? So it's a good pain. <laughs> really, I'm not I'm not kidding. It's it's a it's a useful pain. Like many speaking, you know, like so many years ago. Um, uh, I was diagnosed with melanoma, like skin can kind of dangerous skin cancer. That's why you always see me wearing a hat. I'm not supposed to let the sun touch my skin. Um, and uh, I went to, because I had this this mole that had um, been going getting itchy and going a strange shape on me. And uh, and uh, I've been to two doctors in this country, and they said, "Oh, don't worry about it. You're fine." <laughs> but when I I moved to the states, then um, a couple of people. Uh, associated with Abayagiri, one one of the novices was a nurse, and uh, one of the people on the the board of uh, trustees was a was a doctor, and they both saw it and they said, "You should see a dermatologist." So I went to a local doctor, and um, dermatologist in the local town of Ukiah, and uh, I think he was uh, used to uh, stray religious types in M Mendocino County is a very countercultural place. So I think, like many doctors, he'd seen all kinds of colorful characters coming in with all sorts of exotic diseases that they didn't really have. So he said, all right, all right, yeah, what's the problem? And so I said, well, it's this mole on my shoulder. And he said, okay, let's have a look. And he literally kind of turned around, took one look, picked up his camera, took a shot and said, lie down. And reached for the scalpel. So I was like, okay, one, one look. That didn't, there was no interruption in his movement. It was just like, okay, lie down. Yeah. And so um, I realized, oh, this looks like it might be quite serious. So it, it did. It turned out to be malignant, but it was just in the first stage. Um, but 
So it's, a, it's not good to hear that you've got cancer, but it's good to know that it's been found and that you can do something about it. So, you know, I have a colorful scar on my shoulder, but I keep out of the sun and I use sunscreen. But uh, <clears throat> it was, it's horrible to know, but it's good to know in the same breath. So their ego being threatened, uh, it's unpleasant to know it's not in charge, like all our favorite tyrants and political <laughs> authoritarians. But it, uh, <clears throat> it's also good to know that they're not in, you know, absolutely in charge and they don't have absolute power. It's, uh, it's helpful too. So, any other questions? There's a hand there. If you could wait for the microphone. Ajahn, um, the question I had was, uh, during meditation, you, we work on um, sort of seeing the ego, and then I found that when the ego is there, the heart is very contracted, uh, but when the ego is let go of, the heart is quite wide and spreads. In what you've said, where does the heart lie in perception, mind, and thought, and... I, I just got overconfused. <laughs> well, that's, the heart is what is aware of it. You know, that's that's the, the, if you like, the knowing organ, the the faculty of of awareness. Like when I use the word like the heart or awareness, that they're, they're kind of synonymous. So awareness is the activity of of the chitta, the heart. But you know, what you describe is exactly how I would describe it too. When the mind fixates on self concern, then the the heart is sort of limited, contracted, imprisoned, and when the, those self-centered concerns fall away, there's a sense of, of limitless and, uh, limitlessness and, and uh, ha contentment, happiness, freedom. Does that answer your question? Yes, I think it was a terminology. I wasn't sure what, to, what name to put it. Well, the, the terms are used in, in different ways by different teachers in different situations, so it's good to ask, because uh, <coughs> you know, the um, uh, you know, different people use words in different ways, so it's good to, to check things through and uh, to find out what's really being meant. Yes, so the question there. Is it because... Um when you said, who am I, and it's kind of not easy to answer the question, is it because we can't rely on human beings to be constant in their behavior because they can change? So you can't say, yes, you are this, but then tomorrow you could be something else, apart from the ego and all that. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's part of it. I mean, it's, it's rather, like I was saying at the beginning, you know, what's what really has value in your life or which which identity are you referring to are you ref is it you as a doctor or you as a, uh, a child you as a parent yeah you as a, another person in the queue at the supermarket you know who who are you you know we, we are all these different people so that the the more that you are fixed on uh, or a person is fixed on i am this person and everyone must see me in this way then that is necessarily going to cause a lot of conflict and difficulty, the more that um, there, there can be, a, in a sense, an adaptability that, you're, in a sense, you're a readiness to wear a variety of different masks. Like, if I demanded to, my sisters call me Ajahn and bow three times, 
whenever they see me. That would cause conflict in the family. I can guarantee they're very fine people, but uh, I'm not their Ajahn. <laughs> so that, uh, you know, the, to, to recognize that the way you like to see yourself or you habitually see yourself is not the way other people see you. You know, that they see you as, oh, just another man or just a woman or just a, you know, someone who's in the way. I, you, know, I'm, you know, how when you're on the M25 and you need to get, like I went to Chithurst and back yesterday, so... You know, you're on the M25. So the M25 comes into a lot of Dhamma talks here at Amravati. <laughs> so it's a very, very useful uh, spiritual symbol. So, you know, when you when, say when you're trying to get to Heathrow from here, you know, you say, oh, the traffic was awful. You know, they are the traffic. I'm never traffic. <laughs> they are in my way. I'm trying to get to the airport, but the, the, the traffic, them. How many people sit in their car on the M25 or anywhere, and say, I am traffic. How unfortunate that I'm clogging up the road for all these important people <laughs> who've, got, who've got significant places to get to. Uh, how regrettable that I'm in their way. Any, any hands, show of hands? <laughs> Amazing, not a single hand being raised. You know? Because they are traffic. Like, or that or the queues were enormous at the supermarket. Like, rather than... Oh, it was really regrettable. I, kept, I was in the way of all sorts of people who wanted to get to the till, but I was in front of them. You know, we don't think that way. So, you know, do we think of ourselves as a, um, you know, by our professional qualifications, by our role as a parent or as a, as a child, as a sibling, as a, you know, a, um, a follower or as a leader or as some particular function? Yeah, <clears throat> we 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 like to think of ourselves in in various ways. So certain, yeah, and but the, as I said, the more that we're fixated uh, on who we uh, who we are, or that we can present that to the world, then the more we're going to create suffering. I mean, it can be quite it can be quite funny. I, I was just re was remembering um, George Sharp, who was the um, chairman of the English Sangha Trust, the charity that invited. Uh, uh, Lumpur Chan, Lumpur Sumedhi to come to England back in the 70s. Uh, he, he was a professional illustrator, quite a, an art buff. And he, he's been retired a long time, but he, every so often when there would be an exhibition in London, he would sometimes he would invite uh, Lumpur Sumedhi, or, or uh, now that uh, he, he's retired, he would invite me sometimes to an exhibition in London. So a couple of years ago, there was a, there was Leonardo da Vinci exhibition at the, uh, the gallery in Trafalgar Square. And so... <clears throat> we uh, went along um, and uh, went to the desk and George said, you know, two tickets please. And the, the young woman behind the desk said, um, oh, I'm sorry, sir, there's, there's no tickets available until you know, the middle of September. And then George, and he was he's wearing his kind of dark overcoat and his fedora, he said, do you know who I am? <laughs> I'm sure he'll forgive me for saying this. And he kind of gave her this look. And she said, no, sir, I don't. And he said, oh, well, never mind. I thought I'd try it. <laughs> it, was a very, it was a very sweet moment. But, uh, very, very, those of you who know George know it's a very kind of Georgian moment. But, uh, <clears throat> so that, uh, but some people go through life with that, don't you know who I am? And expecting the world to just... Uh, go along with that. But uh, the more that we are um, ready to be seen in different ways, 
and not to demand to be recognized or, or, or held in a particular fashion. It's like, you know, you, when you, if you go to the hospital, if you're, you're, you know, you're patient number five, bed three, you know, that, that's who you are, you know, to the, to the people on the ward. You're just, you know, that woman in bed number, bed number three. And you, you can say, don't you know who I am? But <laughs> it might not get you, get you very far. <laughs> and, uh, and on a, on a, but also that kind of, that's one of the functions of, a, of spiritual practice in a monastery is in giving people a, a different context for themselves so you don't have to be you know, the, the great art, cri art critic or the, the uh, significant professor or the, 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 uh, you know, the, the mother of five doctors. You know. it, it doesn't count. And that uh, you know, particularly on a meditation retreat when everyone's keeping silence, it's, it can be a huge relief. You don't have to carry that identity around. You don't have to be anyone. You can just be blob number five, row three. <laughs> you know, that, that woman with the green shirt, and that's it. You know, <sighs> what a relief. Because uh, it's, it's, a, a, it's burdensome to continually be identifying with, with that. So that the, the more flexible that we are, I would say, with the identities that we have, and the more ready we are to be seen in different ways, then uh, the, uh, the more we can just flow with the events of life and you know, we can offer what, we, we, what is useful where we can and um, where we can't offer anything or we have no um, particular part to play, then we can just keep quiet. It's very, we can live very harmoniously, very peacefully. Yes, there's a, a hand back there. If you can wait for the microphone. Yes, the woman beside the camera, yeah. Thank you for the interesting talk. Plenty of food for thought, as usual. Uh, my question is, um, unlike the Tathagata, we are not liberated from mental formations and consciousness and so on, and hence governed by the law of karma. So if we are nothing, who or what then receives the results of karma? Is it the I-ness you mentioned in the analogy of the fragrance uh, of the rose? Well, the, 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 the thing is that there's apparently a, a being who is the recipient of karma. So that the laws of cause and effect function in, inexorably. And the more that the mind is identified with a particular set of memories, feelings, uh, a particular set of characteristics, then the more it will feel like I, uh, I am the, this, this person here uh, is the owner of this karma. But uh, in a way, it's more, it would be more accurate to say that the, the, the results of karma are experienced here, uh, but to not turn that into a separate individual entity. So insofar as that sense of, uh, of awareness is attached to and turned into a me or a mine, then there is apparently a being uh, that is the owner of that karma. I would say that essentially that there is no being that is the owner of the karma. That's just the appearance of things. Just like, you know, you have a name, I would presume. You know, you have your own story, your own identity. But then when, when that's deconstructed, you, you can't find what that really is, you know. You know, whether your, your name is Susan or Sorogeny or whatever it might be, 
that they say, okay, well, what's that word referring to? Is it this body? Well, this body keeps changing all the time. It's breathing in, breathing out. Uh, and, and is this the same person that was there 30 years ago? Is it, you know, will it be the same person in 30 years' time? It's in a constant state of change. So that when we say that the person who is the owner of the karma, it's a convenient fiction. So when, uh, because that quality of, of awareness, whether it's, uh, the, there's the, the feeling that it's identified with this body, this mind, it is not in its actuality identified with it, it just feels like it. Like I f at this moment I can feel like I'm Ajahn Amaro, but that's just a feeling. There isn't really any Ajahn Amaro here that's substantial. When you, when you, when you deconstruct it, there's no essential, independent, permanent entity there. Just like with the Buddha saying that about himself. You know, the, 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 the Tathagata is sitting in front of you, yet you can't define the, the Tathagata in terms of the, uh, being the body, having the body, not having the body, being the personality, not having the personality, and so on. Yet the Tathagata is right there. So it's, it's frustrating to the thinking mind. But uh, this is where the, the usefulness of insight meditation, and also particularly this kind of reflective inquiry. So when you, you remember something that you've done that was a, like a, 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 an achievement that makes you, you happy, like say, and then you can look at that and say, I'm proud of that. That then you, you take that take that apart and say, okay, there's a feeling, there's a memory that arises. You know, I came top of my class. You know, I've got three fantastically uh, loving children. I'm very proud of that. I'm very happy about that. So you can there's a memory, there's a set of perceptions, there's a narrative, there's a, an emotion. But if you, each one of those is looked at, then explored, well, what is it that knows that narrative? What is it that knows that perception? What is it that knows that emotion? Does, do they have an owner, really? And again, it's not, you're not trying to create a different belief system. You're just exploring what's already here. You're not trying to get something that you haven't got. <laughs> it's like exploring uh, what has always been the case, but we didn't realize it because we're so identified with our body, our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, our personality, our, our personal story. And that's one of the, the, the kind of shocking and frightening, but also liberating qualities of insight. It's like, oh my goodness. All these things that... I'm proud of, they don't really belong to anybody. Oh. <laughs> I enjoyed being flattered and being praised, but what is it that's being praised? Oh, well, what's being praised isn't who and what I really am. Oh. And the, then there's this real, like, well, it's just like praising gravity. Like, you know, how wonderful gravity is. Like, well, doesn't really apply. Like you're a wonderful person. Said, well, yeah, you, you're, yeah, you're welcome to think that, but uh, what's here is not really a person. Yeah. So being being uh, say grateful. For, I'm really grateful for gravity. Like doesn't mean it doesn't have any meaning. I don't know if this is is making sense, but it's it's like in terms of practicing dhamma, you're not trying to get something that you haven't got already. It's more like discovering what's always been the case. So it's not like you had an ego and you're going to lose it and not be anybody. It's like the, the, the ego is already not what we are. <laughs> like the, in the, an analogy they give um, in this respect is, say, if you're walking through the grass, this doesn't really work very well in England because we haven't got that many poisonous snakes. But imagine we had a few poisonous snakes. So you're walking through the grass 
It works very well in Asia, so Thailand. You're walking through the forest or walking through the grass, and you see this, this round shape in the grass, <gasps> and you, you feel afraid and tense. And then you realize, oh, it's not a snake. It's just a coil of rope. <sighs> and so then the, 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 the question is, what happened to the snake when the coil of rope was recognized? Nothing happened to the snake because there never was one. It's like, what happens to the ego when selflessness is, is realized? Nothing happens to the ego. There, that, never really was who, you know, that never really was substantial or solid or real. So nothing is being lost apart from the illusion. So the laws of cause and effect function. So if a harmful action is carried out, there'll be the painful result of that, and that will be experienced. But when you, you look and say, well, what's the, what's the agent, what's the owner here of that? It's saying that the memory of that unskillful action happens here. But when you look for the, the me, the I that is the doer or the owner, that, that, uh, there's the, uh, just the awareness of the memory, the awareness of the feeling, the awareness of the regret, the, the regret that arises and passes away. So it's a, um, both a recognition and an acknowledgement, both of wholesome and unwholesome and neutral action. You know, so that yet karma has its results. Something that you feel very proud of and glad about, there's a warm feeling. Something you feel very bad and embarrassed about, it's a kind of bitter, painful feeling. But uh, painful feelings arise and pass away. Delightful feelings arise and pass away. They're not who and what we are. And again, I, I'm not putting this across as a belief system, but this is where insight meditation in particular helps to reveal that and brings the mind to that, oh my goodness, there never really was anything there. Wow. So this is called, uh, and that practice, that kind of practice, the development of wisdom, is called the karma that leads to the end of karma which is the expression that the Buddha used. So it's an action that you take, but it leads to the end of action, the end, the end of karma and vipaka. So that uh, the laws of cause and effect still function, you know, gravity still pulls things together. <laughs> but the, the sense of ownership, the sense of I and me and mine around that it is dissolved. Does that make sense? It's good to, it's also, it's very useful to take these kind of themes and explore them because you know we can hear these words and everything's recorded now like filmed and <laughs> audio and everything so you can play it back and, and explore it but it's most helpful within the meditation to 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 really bring that in so let the mind be quiet and as still as possible and then to explore that say well Ajahn Amro said there's still there's the laws of cause and effect but no person who's the owner of those effects huh how could that be? Uh, or there's the, the memory of that action and then the sweet feeling that comes from that. But th that which knows a sweet feeling is not a feeling. It's not sweet. <laughs> it's, just, it's just knowing. It's aware. How does that work? Is that, is that true? Is that real? Is he right? Is he wrong? Is he talking nonsense? What's the truth? And so we explore it for ourselves. And often with these, these kind of areas, it's just like for a second or half a second, it's, the mind goes, oh, and then quickly, we <laughs> then the self-protection programs come flowing in. Like, I think I need, I, I need a cup of tea. Um, yeah, what's on the TV? Oh, that's, uh, yeah, it was, uh, what's uh, that new uh, reality show on tonight? I better watch that. Yeah. Yeah, things will come in to distract our attention. 
But for that half a second, something like that gap after the question, you know, who am I? What am I? Oh. So the self-protection programs are very comprehensive. <laughs> and we, we often sabotage our own spiritual efforts. Not deliberately, but very effectively. That uh, when those kind of insights dawn, something in us feels very threatened. But I want to be proud of my children. <laughs> I, you know, the, the, they are they are great people. I'm really I'm really proud of them, and we don't want to lose that as an identity. Uh, but it's uh, uh, if we can see that kind of sabotaging going on, where we say no, but I I want to be a famous teacher. <laughs> I want to be loved. I want to to uh, be this. It's, then there's that if if even that feeling is looked at so. Here's the I want to be something feeling. Here it is. Okay, fine. Carry on. Try and own it. Good luck. <laughs> there was a, a, I used to live in California for quite some time, and they have, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, they have very um, philosophical bumper stickers. They're very fond of sending messages to each other on the, the backs of their cars. And one of the popular ones back in the 90s was um, I've given up my search for truth and I'm now looking for a good fantasy. <laughs> that was a popular bumper sticker. So. I've given up my search for truth and I'm now looking for a good fantasy. So it's kind of a joke and it's kind of not a joke. <laughs> because that, that very same, uh, you know, I don't think I want this, I don't think, I don't think I'm ready for this, I don't think I want this to be true. Uh, so in terms of say karma and its results, karma and vipaka, then <clears throat> the taking that reflection and just taking a, those, that kind of a statement saying, well, the laws of cause and effect function inexorably and uh, that's the, the lawfulness of the dhamma, dhamma niyamata. They function completely according to the laws of nature. But the, <clears throat> the, uh, the effects of action, what is it that owns that? Does it have an owner? How, does, how is anything really owned? It's like, can you own a sound? Can you own a color? Can you own a thought or a cloud? And they say, well, I can't own a cloud. Obviously, that's ridiculous. So how can you own a memory? Oh. And in that half a second, before I said, well, of course I can own it. I did it. You know, I did it. I remember doing that. So, of course, it's my memory. I remember. In that half a second before that jumps in, there's something that recognized you can no more own a memory than you can own a cloud, I would suggest. Something is that the citta, the heart, which is aware, it, it, that our own natural wisdom it knows that before our habitual patterns of thinking come, come wading in. So I would invite you to explore that. Yes, there's a, if you can wait for the microphone. If you can wait for the microphone, then we can. Everyone can hear the question. Are you just talking about string wing, wing, winning. What's that mean? And arahan. What that mean? Could you explain again? Well, the, in um, the the Buddha's description of enlightenment he defined four particular levels. So the first level is called stream entry. 
And so stream entry, like the stream, like a little river, Sotapanna. Um, and so a stream entrer, the stream that is being entered is the stream of the, the, the Eightfold Path, that, uh, as he described it. So the stream entry um, is the first level. And so once stream entry, that level of insight has been reached, then the, um, that person, that being, um, the level of insight is such that they can no longer be reborn in any of the lower realms and that they have, will have no more than seven lifetimes before they reach enlightenment. So that's like the point of no return. So, so once stream entry has been realized, total enlightenment is guaranteed within a few more lifetimes. Uh, the, uh, the next level, uh, so the, 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 and the three characteristics that, um, say, uh, need to be seen and let go of, uh, for stream entry to be realized, uh, self-view, this identification with the body and the personality. And then there is um, doubt about what is the path and what is not the path, vichikicca. And then the uh, the third one is silapata paramasa, which means attachment to uh, rules and conventions and you know, social forms, uh, rites and rituals, so that believing that, uh, say, for example, that um, if you, uh, you have to recite, uh, in, if, unless you recite the Buddha's name, you'll never be liberated. Or if, if, you, uh, if you bathe in the Ganges River, then all of your bad karma will be washed away. So it's like believing that in the action in itself, making those sounds or taking those actions, that's intrinsically purifying or liberating. Or something that has value, like a, saying a 10-pound note. They're saying that a 10-pound note is worth 10 pounds. And so to, to see through Sila Pataparamasa is to recognize, well, no, a 10-pound note is just a human agreement. It doesn't have any value in and of itself apart from being a piece of plastic or paper. It's just, you know, on, and even on the note, it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of 10 pounds. So it's an agreement. So we agree to say um, reciting the Buddha's name is a valuable thing or that we agree to say bathing in the Ganges it will uh, will wash away your bad karma. It doesn't make it true. It's just a, uh, something that um, people have agreed to give value to, and so that oh, like stocks and shares are very, you know, the the price of, of stocks and shares. People say, oh, it's valuable. Everyone buys it. Whoosh, its price goes up. Oh no, it's a, it's a disaster. It's a, it's a completely valueless, and the, and the price goes down. So sila pataparamasa is the value, the believing in the value of something and saying it has value, it has meaning in and of itself. So to see through those, um, the uh, attachment to, to your body, your personality, to social conventions and, uh, and also to, to have no doubt about what is the path that is uh, what constitutes stream entry. So the next level is called once returning. So that means when someone has reached that level of uh, once returner, then that means they'll have no more than one life as a human being. Uh, uh, they return to the human world uh, no more than one time, and then uh, enlightenment will be guaranteed. Um, or, they, or they might be born in the higher realms, in the human realm. Then the next, uh, so that is with the uh, once returner, the qualities of uh, ill will, negativity is reduced, 
and the quality of, of uh, raga, of lust, desire, is reduced. They're not eradicated, but they're, they're reduced. Uh, the next level is called anagami, which means non-returner. So when the mind has reached the level of... And also when I, use a, when, the, when I use a term like a person has reached or a being has reached that level, it's more, like, more accurate to say when the mind has reached that, uh, that, that level rather than the person in the light of the conversation we just had about karma. <laughs> so when the mind has reached the level of a, of a non-returner, then it's such a level of non-attachment and clarity that... Uh, once this human life is is over, then they will be be uh, that uh, mind will only be born in that these uh, uh, higher Brahma realms called the Sudavasa. So in uh, Pure Land, Buddhism is based on the Sudavasa. Sudavasa means the pure abodes or the, the pure realms. So that's where anagamis or non-returners. Uh, so they they uh, at the end of this human life they are born into one of those five of the um, pure abodes, and then they realize enlightenment. In those, in one of those realms, either immediately or after some time, and then uh, arahant, uh, someone who's reached the, the full enlightenment, then that, that the mind is not reborn again. So you can't really say a, a being is an arahant. You could say the mind has realized arahata, or has realized the quality of arahatship. But you can't really say a. I would say, <laughs> you can't uh, accurately say a person is an arahant, but rather that mind has reached arahatship or uh, has realized arahata. And that is where the mind is completely free from all greed, hatred and, and delusion, all, uh, all ad- identification, all conceit. And so that, that, uh, uh, that uh, if a, a being is a, uh, who's been living a human life um, realizes uh, arahatship, then that mind is not born into any realm. And then... Uh, I think last time, last Sunday talk, or the one before, I was talking about this, that people often ask the Buddha, well, what, or like Vachagota, asking what, what happens to an enlightened being after the, the death of the body? And the Buddha would, said, yeah, it's not describable. And they said, well, do they reappear in a different realm? Do they go to some sort of super heaven? And the Buddha said, reappears does not apply. Well, do they not reappear? Said, well, no, does not reappear doesn't apply. Well, do they both reappear and not reappear? If you can follow that, he said, "No, that doesn't apply." Well, do they neither reappear nor not reappear? He said, no, that doesn't apply either. So, so, so the the kind of head clutching begins, and so then uh, <clears throat> the uh, there's a, a dialogue that I was quoting the other day with the Buddha with this young Brahmin called Upasiva, and uh, and Upasiva asks the Buddha, "So one who has reached the end." Um, do they no longer exist or are they made immortal, perfectly free? And then the Buddha says, one who has reached the end has no criterion by which they can be measured. That which could be spoken of is no more. You cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes of being, all phenomena are removed, all means of speaking have gone too. So there's nothing you can say. Words don't apply because our, our words and our, our concepts, they all come from seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, from three-dimensional space, from time. If you, if you try to conceive a reality that is not connected with time, not connected with, with space, not connected with individuality, there's nothing to hang it on. So that's why the Buddha said that a target is profound, immeasurable, un- unfathomable, like the ocean. So you can't, 
like the Buddha in that dialogue with Upasiva, he says, you cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes of being, all phenomena are removed, all means of speaking have gone too. So the, the Western, the German philosopher Wittgenstein uh, said a similar thing, said uh, that which cannot be spoken of, the mind must necessarily pass over. That, uh, that's the way he finished his um, kind of famous uh, logical treatise. If you can't speak about it, then the mind has to pass over it. It doesn't mean to say it's not significant or meaningful. It means you can't, it's, you can't talk about it, it's inconceivable, so you, there's, there's no way of addressing it. So to our thinking mind, that's very frustrating. Think, but where do they go? <laughs> but uh, it's, it, I feel it's helpful because it's pointing to the fact that, oh yeah, this mind creates a world based on time, on space. Me here, you there, time passing. It's now four o'clock, nearly 4.01. Yeah, Sunday afternoon, you're wearing a pink jacket. I'm a monk. It's Sunday, you know, these kind of you there, me here, time, form, sound, color. That's the world we know. If you take away time, you take away location, you take away individuality. The words and concepts, they've got nothing to form around. So the Buddha was quite clear in saying you can't, you can't talk about it. The words and concepts don't apply. So rather than trying to fabricate a, a, a way of, of um, describing the indescribable. He just said, don't bother. Just rec realize this is the, the, the most important thing to, uh, the most important possibility, potentiality of this life. And once it's realized, it'll speak for itself. Like I was saying about the, the Buddha doesn't say what the real, you know, the real self is or using that kind of language. So just stop identifying with what you're not and what is real will speak for itself. That makes sense. So that our, the the uh, stream entry is the first level of enlightenment, and then arahata is the final level, and uh, that's the 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 format that the the Buddha used in his in his his teaching. And so that it's uh, it's describing levels of realization of 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 the mind and the degrees of clarity the degrees of freedom the degrees of of um say happiness if you like if you if you switch the microphone on Mantra, for example, isn't just your mantra sometimes does have where thing happen then what's that? Well, it's just uh, the... Um, it's very like, not like a normal time you do things. And then suddenly they go to a wild, weird stage of mind. Then what's that? Well, the, the mind is, a, is a, uh, a wonderful and terrible thing. <laughs> so depending on what you do with your mind, I mean, all sorts of things can happen. You know, that different kinds of meditation practice, if you concentrate your mind in certain ways, then it can make you fall asleep. Uh, you concentrate your mind in other ways and it can make the mind fully awake. Uh, some minds will produce particular uh, images, other minds will produce no images. Um, you know, life is full of all sorts of different perceptions, but what we make out of those perceptions is, um, you know, is up to us. You know, if you showed an iPad to somebody a hundred years ago, they can be convinced that you had incredible magical powers. You know, or... Um, 
going into a uh, going into a shop, giving a piece of plastic to a person behind the desk, and then you can drive out in a Rolls Royce. Wow, that's magic! And he gave you the plastic back. You know, not, you 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 didn't lose anything, and he just he gives you a Rolls Royce to drive away in. Wow, that's magic! Amazing. What did you do to his mind? Yeah. So it's like whenever people would come to Ajahn Chah and they would talk about meditation experiences, either things that were kind of very um, exotic and interesting, like you know, they'd see an image of the Buddha or some great, you know, the, the Ajahn Man would come and teach them, or they'd go back to the listening to the Buddha in the Jetavana, or they'd have horrible experiences, they'd be kind of attacked by ghosts and demons, or they'd kind of um, have the, the body flying up into the air and exploding, you know, he'd say, well, that which knew, that which was aware of the body exploding, you know, uh, you know were, you, were you paying attention to that? You know, that which knows the body exploding and that, that which knows the body just walking along the meditation path, it's the same awareness. The mind that, that knows the, uh, the image of a Buddha or the mind that knows the sound of your own breath, it's the same mind. You don't have to make anything of it. So he was always kind of trying to help people not focus on exotic experiences or strange experiences, but rather, what does your mind do with it? When he might say, well, yeah, my mind, I just, my mind is confused and busy and I'm just kind of wrestling with pain in my legs and I'm really just frustrated. And he said, well, you know, are you aware of that frustration? Are you, are you aware of that, the, the busyness of your thoughts? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so just observe that the pain is changing. It's an Icha Dukkha Anatta. That's all you need to know. Just let go of it. Or if the, someone says, well, I had this vision of the Buddha and he came along and he said, you know, Sunyo, I've got teachings for you and here, you know, you're a special disciple and listen to this and you'll be totally liberated. And he said, well, was it changing? Yeah. Does, it have an own, what, does it have an owner? That, uh, you know, who, who was that Buddha speaking to? Was that a person? Was that a real you? Or what is it that was aware of that? Was it Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta? So he would always be bringing it back to your own moment-by-moment moment experience rather than saying, oh, wow, that's a great experience. That's really important. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, dear. Yeah, you want to worry about that. You know, Here, you know, you know say this mantra and you'll be protected. He would never do that. He would always just... Uh, Bring it back to, well, what's your mind doing with it? Whether it's a pleasant experience, a painful experience, whether it's really exotic and colorful, or whether it's um, something very mundane, like pain in your knees. Like, um, Jack Cornfield, who's a famous uh, meditation teacher in the States now, is a, a good friend of ours. Uh, he was a, a monk with Ajahn Chah back in the 1960s. And uh, and so he was he trained with Ajahn Chah for a few months and then went off to... to study with different ajans in Thailand and Burma and and he came after a couple of years he came back to to Lumpur Cha and and he had all these stories like oh I went to Mogok Sayadaw and Mahasi Sayadaw and I went to you know Ajahn Buddha Dasa I went to you know Lumpur Tien and and uh, and he's describing all these um, interesting meditation experiences kind of various visions and uh, and powerful states of concentration and, and Lumpur Cha just sort of listened to him and said when Jack got to the end of his story he said so, can you let go of it? <laughs> Completely unimpressed. But Jack tells the story, you know, it's like, it's Jack who tells the story. It's like, Ajahn Chah was completely unimpressed by all these exotic experiences. 
these strange feelings and visions and uh, powerful states of concentration, you know, samadhi, different depths. And it's like, can you let go of it? Yeah. yeah. Is it anicca dukkha anatta? Which might seem a bit deflating, but that's the point. Because the mind loves to grab particular perceptions. Oh, and I recited the Buddha's name and I had this incredible experience. My mind went into this deep state and I saw the pure land. And Well... <clears throat> but that's, you know, you could also say, well, I, I recited the Buddha's name and I started to think about my trip to, to, to um, Aldi, <laughs> going through my shopping list, you know, while my mouth was reciting the Buddha's name. And, I was, and he said, well, thinking of your shopping list and going to visit Aldi or, or seeing the pure land, essentially it's just sanya, it's just perceptions. You can make it into a thing, well, I've just had a vision of the pure land, wow. I'm a special practitioner. Yeah, it's really wonderful, amazing thing. Your mind grabs it and identifies with it. Or the, the, but if we have wisdom, okay, well, that was a vision of the pure land. So, anicca, dukkha, anatta, you know, it's not self. It's just perceptions arise and pass away. That's it. Or that, oh, my mind spent the whole time, my mouth was reciting the Buddha's name, and I was thinking about my shopping list. And, uh, <clears throat> But I can now recognize, well, yeah, that even that was anicca, dukkha, anatta. It was arising, passing away. It's, it's not self. That's all it was. So that every experience can be the fuel for wisdom and for liberation if we, if we let it. If we are not wise, then we think we are attached to something being a good state or a bad state or you know, valuable or not valuable, and we create an identity around that. I'm someone who's failing in my practice. I'm someone who's succeeding in my practice. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good meditator. I'm a bad meditator. And those become our identities. But on the theme of today, I'd say none of those are really who and what we are. None of those are the, the real me. The, the mind likes to identify with success, with failure, with different qualities. But as long as the mind identifies with anything, it's necessarily out of tune with Dhamma. Like the Buddha said, yena yena hi manyanti tatatanghoti anyatati. Whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is other than that. So whether we conceive ourselves as a success or as a failure, things going well, things going badly, any conception has to be uh, wide of the mark. But the, the refuge is the mind that's, oh, here's the mind conceiving me as a success. Here's the mind conceiving me as a failure or me as completely average. That's what the, the mind is is creating this person. Aha! And then that, in that moment, that awareness is is the refuge, and that's how the I would say that's the the real path of of liberation. So I see that the clock has gone around to ten minutes past four. So I think that's enough for today, and uh, wish you all well. So uh, somebody else will be doing the Sunday next couple of Sunday talks. So um, I have my. Uh, solo retreat time scheduled so I um, look forward to seeing you again or variations of you in a few weeks time <laughs>